MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, Allison Gill, AG, and welcome to episode two of the book, Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become an American by Wajahat Ali. As you know, I spoke with the author last week, which just about sums up the introduction portion of the book, so I won't go over that. It discusses the dark humor we can expect, among other things. Uh, I assume you all have your copy and have read it or are reading along. And while that might not have been necessarily required in past series, it's definitely going to be required this time because this book is very different from anything I've ever done for the book club before. Most of the books I've covered here are informational in nature, political, legal, or narrative memoirs that can be read and summarized in fairly straightforward fashion. But this book by Waj is funny and poignant, and it is from a unique perspective that I personally don't share, but that we can all at some points relate to. So if I covered this book the way I've covered books in the past, it feels like It would be me watching like the latest Patton Oswalt special and then trying to explain it to you without you having seen it. Uh, So you're going to have to read this book. And I'm sitting here as I write this script, trying to figure out how I'm going to present it. Uh, But the best I can do is the best I can do. So here goes. Waj opens chapter one called Create Your Own Superhero Origin Story with, quote, I always felt like I was slightly undercooked. And that immediately made me feel at home here. Uh, He backs that feeling up by alerting us to the fact that being an only child in a Pakistani family came with unicorn status. And he backs that up with numbers, noting that out of the top 10 most populous countries, Pakistan comes in fifth with 238 million. And uh, India and Bangladesh come in first and eighth, respectively. So he says, quote, we South Asians are a breeding people. So it was tough to find another Pakistani only child. Second. He's the only left-handed person in his family, and he was also a chubby kid. He had a Batman symbol-shaped tuft of back hair inherited from his father, and he had a dent in the middle of his forehead from a hit-and-run car accident. Uh, He also inherited a heart condition, OCD, allergies, constant stomach pains, excess sweating, shyness, and a wobbly walk from being flat-footed. He says, clearly, I was born a winner. Quote, at a young age, I looked around and realized America's narrative does not include a kid like me as one of its superheroes. And Wash says the best he got was Apu in The Simpsons, and that was voiced by Hank Azaria, a white actor. He says, quote, often we were the cardboard villain, a lazy composite of every Orientalist fantasy assembled into a convenient brown bearded boogeyman whose emotional range existed somewhere between belligerent and irritable or worse. 
we were completely excised from the story. So, Waj's first recommendation on your quest to become American is to create a superhero origin story, which brings us to the bottom of page 17 in a section called The American Dream. Now, this section of chapter one is about Waj's dad and uncle coming to America in 1966 as teenagers. Ali and his older brother, Sultan, arrived in San Francisco, and Waj paints a picture of what was going on at the time. The president was LBJ, and he was just sending more soldiers to the escalating Vietnam War. Uh, The first ATM had just been introduced, The Sound of Music just won Best Picture, and George Rockwell of the American Nazi Party carried signs in the streets that read, quote, race mixing is is financed and led by the Jews, unquote. Now, the brothers enrolled in a two-year college, and then Abu, which is what Waj calls his dad, uh, Abu transferred to Cal State and got his bachelor's degree. Then he got a scholarship to Northern Illinois University as a grad student in economics. And Waj reminds us that immigrants, people of color, and women had to do everything better, faster, stronger, and smarter than their white counterparts just to keep up, uh, you know, with, you know, not keep up, but, you know, to be considered the same. And his father learned that lesson while applying for a visa extension to go to Northern Illinois University. His intellect would not shield him from America's original sin, racism. Now, he walked into the immigration services in Chicago to extend his student visa, but his academic achievements meant nothing there. Quote, he was just another young brown man without citizenship, without whiteness, unquote. And the white guy working there briefly reviewed his dad's application and then told him he didn't think he was a serious student. And he's like, how can you say I'm not a serious student? And he snapped back, quote, you Arabs come here only to fuck our American girls, unquote. Waj writes, bigots aren't really nuanced when it comes to their racial anxiety. An Arab might as well be a Pakistani who looks like a damn Indian who comes roughly from the same place as a goddamn Chinaman who, like all black people, originally come from shithole countries and invade America just to take, take, take this country's resources, especially its most prized possession, American girls, which refers only to white women, unquote. Waj's dad's visa was denied and he was ordered for deportation. So he packed his bags, bought a one-way ticket back to Pakistan. But before he hopped on that one-way flight back to Karachi, he, he tried one more lawyer that he remembered was located in a suburb of Chicago called Hoffman Estates. He went to see that lawyer. He told his story to that attorney who said there's just not really a chance. And so he got up to leave. And on his way out, a young lawyer named John ran after him. John had overheard his story and said he might have a chance with something called an Einstein visa. And Waj points out here, that's the same visa that allowed Melania Trump to remain in the United States. And he says, quote, my father was a brilliant researcher who received a scholarship, a grant and a teaching position at a graduate university. Melania Trump was a Slovenian model who at the time in 2000 was dating Donald Trump and appeared naked on a fur rug on the cover of British GQ. Both Abu and Melania obviously had extraordinary abilities valued by the United States of America, unquote. So John, this young lawyer, accompanied Waj's dad pro bono to an immigration court with the petition for permanent resident visa for academic achievement. And the elderly judge, who was presumably Jewish due to his last name, shook his head at the deportation order and said, I will approve this application. Kindly get it submitted within 10 days. And within three months, his application was approved. And five years later, he became a citizen. Abu told Waj that, One American's racism and another American's kindness helped chart their future in this country. And Waj says that push and pull, 
that perpetual tug of war between xenophobia and acceptance is a perfect microcosm of the lived experiences of so many Americans who are still told to, quote, go back. Now, the next section of Chapter 1 is called The Interesting Girl from Karachi, A Marriage Story. It begins on page 22 in the hardback edition, and this is the story of how Waja's parents got together. Abu wasn't really into girls as much as he was into staying at home, doing research, puttering around the house, that kind of thing, doing chores. And the exact opposite he was of his ladies' man brother, Sultan, who teased him relentlessly. And by 1977, the clan, which consisted of Dadi and Dada, or Grandma and Grandpa, Yasmin, Abu's younger sister, along with Abu and Sultan, they all packed up, moved to Dayton, Ohio, from Chicago suburbs. Abu went to work at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base as a program manager for Fairchild Aircraft, where he assisted the U.S. Air Force System Program Office responsible for A-10 attack aircraft acquisition. And Waj says, quote, Note, a Pakistani Muslim American helping the country's national security and defense program would, 40 years later, be seen as a member of a religion that is a unique threat in need of a ban, unquote, referring to Trump's Muslim ban. Now, Abu was nearing 30, which is pretty much the male equivalent of a spinster for South Asians. And one day, Dada, Grandpa, was reading a newspaper that he had specially sent to him from Pakistan, uh, and Abu picked it up and noticed a photo of a girl in the, in, in the newspaper, and she had just finished first in her master's test for nutrition. Her name was Samina Hashmi, and he thought she was, quote, an interesting girl, and asked Dada about her. Now, Dada recognized her father, Commander Iqbal Ahmed Hashmi, as a, as a college friend of his. They went to college in India together. And Yasmin, his sister, remembered her as a classmate from college in Karachi back in Pakistan. So Dada mailed a letter, including Abu's biodata, to a mutual acquaintance in Karachi. Now, biodata is like a Tinder profile, Waj says. And the prized categories include the following, a good job, like doctor, lawyer, or whatever, a good family, and fair skin. He says, quote, to this day, South Asian elders in America and abroad casually say the following, oh, she's pretty, but she's dark, or oh, she's lovely, but she's kumrang. And kumrang literally translate to less color, which makes it even more absurd when it's used to describe dark skin. The phrase for light skin, safrang, which literally translate to, translates to clean skin color. That's the quote from the book. Now, Waja's mother was an athlete, and she played tennis outdoors all the time. And the sun darkened her skin, and her mother would say, in like panic attack mode, no one will marry you, look how dark you've become, stay inside. Now the biodata was passed along, and eventually in 1978, Abu had a business trip to Abu Dhabi, and he stopped in Karachi to meet the interesting girl. And he brought the entire clan with him, they made the usual awkward formal chit-chat when they all met, and then Abu asked for permission to speak to Waj's mom. And he returned to the house and sat there in silence with her, the interesting girl, quote-unquote, until she said, you wanted to talk to me, why aren't you talking? And Abu just cracked a smile and then left five minutes later, and within a week they were married. And now next up is a section called The Golden Child Who's Wasted His Face. <laughs> now, Waj was born in November of 1980, uh, and the birth was notable in that it was painful and required a C-section. Dada chose his name, using the old faithful eeny, meeny, miny, mo method with names from the Quran and landed on Wajahat, which means esteemed and handsome. But Waj opines he was neither, and currently his mom laments that he has not taken advantage of his good looks by working out, dressing appropriately, or using his jawline to act in Hollywood movies. Quote, Allah gave you such a nice face and you wasted it, unquote. Waj notes here that his mom also believes she's the most diplomatic member of the family. 
Now, Waj was born a Scorpio and was the first in his family at that as well. Quote, the first Wajahat of the family had arrived home, which at the time was a house in Milpitas, California, shared by my parents, my grandparents, my aunt, my father's brother, his wife, and their two kids. We were the Desi Bunch, and our squad had a deeper bench than the Bradys, unquote. And that takes us to the next section called, The Left Hand is Only Used for One Thing. Nawaj talks about growing up left-handed here. He says the first few years, the only thing that differentiated him from his cousins uh, was the fact that he was an only child and that he was, quote, healthy or, quote, big-boned. <laughs> Uh, but then he started using his left hand to draw and throw, um, which seemed to be okay at first. But when he started eating with his left hand, apparently that was DEFCON 5. Now, things were already difficult for left-handed kids. They have to write from left to right, which leaves smudge marks on your left palm and, you know, leads to mockery from the right-handed elite, quote-unquote. And, and I have to say, the language Waj uses here is pointed. He talks about having to contort his body to sit in school desks, which are created, quote, to accommodate the right majority and not trigger right anxiety. There's the scissors and there's sports equipment. And listen to this. He writes, quote, right privilege doesn't see right hand bias. Rightness thinks all handedness matters, unquote. But in Muslim and Asian communities, left handedness is especially shameful because they're told from childhood that the left hand is only used for one thing. How can one hand that is used to clean one end be used to feed the other. But Waj notes that if there's ever a global religious war, all major religions can at least agree on their shared history of fearing and hating left-handed people. He goes on to tell us that the word sinister comes from a Latin word meaning on the left side. In the Old Testament, it is said that humans have two impulses, righteousness, which comes from the right, and wickedness, which comes from the left. The Catholic Church would condemn and execute left-handed people during the Spanish Inquisition, and left-handedness was a sign of witchcraft used to execute and burn people at the stake during the Salem witch trials. He says, quote, I had, no my, I had no idea my desire to eat fruity pebbles with my left hand was the demon's mark revealing my inherent disposition toward villainy. I just wanted sugar posing as cereal in my He-Man bowl, <laughs> But Waj's mom and grandma hatched this plan to cure him of his left-handedness, and what they would do was that one of them would hold his left hand behind his body and the other would pelt him with tennis balls in hopes that he'd start catching them with his right hand. Now, at one point, Waj's dad's youngest brother, his uncle, who was studying to be a doctor, walked in on this scene and said, let it go, let it go, it's over, he's left-handed. But to this day, when Waj is at a large Muslim social event and is seen eating with his left hand, his aunt will yell loudly in front of everyone, Wajahat, the left hand is only used for one thing. Now, next up in the book is, is Waj's early childhood in Fremont, affectionately known as Freakmont, which he says is seen largely as a drive-by city between San Jose and Oakland, up in the Bay Area. And during his youth in the 80s, Fremont had yet to experience the tech boom, and Waj's house was, became what he refers to as sort of a halfway house for itinerant Pakistanis, because people were always staying with them. Some were family, some were randos that would stay for six months or even a year or two because they were related to his parents' friends and they needed a place to stay when they first arrived in the country. Now, Waj just assumed that all homes were like that. Now, Dada gifted the family with a Mercedes-Benz, and they even had a big screen TV that they christened with Top Gun, which had just been released on VHS. And by 1987, his parents had achieved the American dream by checking all the boxes required for Pakistani immigrant status, which he lists here as marriage, a child, a nice suburban home, a Honda, Mercedes, BMW, or Toyota. 
two checks there because they had a Honda and a Mercedes, a big screen TV, and a job that somehow afforded all of that. But in many South Asian communities, personal fulfillment, he says, takes a back seat to the sole question that never gets answered but drives immigrants to participate in a, quote, panicked race that eventually leads them to their graves. And that question is, what will people say? He says, my friend Hassan Minaj had a similar experience and mentioned this in his Netflix special, Homecoming King. And he goes on to say, yes, all South Asians in media know each other and are related and have the same story and look exactly the same. In fact, my real name is Fareed Zakaria, unquote. <laughs> Although Waj's parents never grilled that checklist into his head, his generation couldn't escape it. He said it was like a blanket over them. But happiness, he says, defined his childhood. He does say that they would eventually lose the house, the Mercedes-Benz, and the checklist, and that they'd lose everything. But the next section is called ESL Boys and Elementary School Girls. And this is where Waj describes his unofficial English as a second language class and how it would mark him and three other kids for social death. He talks about how his accent, something he could not hide at age six, crippled his ascension up the social ladder and prevented him from, taking, from talking to his crush, Jennifer, uh, who he refers to the Helen of first grade. Uh, blonde, blue-eyed, white American princess, quote, she gave my stomach googly tinglies. That was what he called the butterflies. Waj's two friends, Chris and Greg, also pined for her, but none of the three were cool kids. Waj says they found each other by virtue of their dorkiness and the fact that no one else would hang out with them. But there was one girl that would talk to Waj, and um, she was a Mexican-American named Mercedes. Waj made her laugh one time through a series of Dr. Pepper jokes that I am going to insist you read for yourself. <laughs> I really have to insist you read these for yourself. I cannot convey them. Waj notes that... A real girl was hanging out with him, enjoying his jokes, not mocking him for his accent or his brownness or his big bones, and inspiring him with her laughter, but she was not Jennifer, and he only had the bandwidth for one crush, so he went with the popular girl. But, dun-dun-dun, there was Chad. They said, he says, let's call him Chad, which is perfect, because that's what we call Chads. And there's always a Chad. This was Waja's first nemesis, who he describes as a, quote, tall, skinny, white kid with blonde hair who looked like the Promethean Aryan child molded from the aspirational dreams of white nationalists everywhere, a cocky bastard who walked like a mediocre white man who woke up every day thinking he pissed excellence, unquote. Now, do you see why I'm, I'm telling you you have to buy this book? You have to read this book. Now, Waj describes Jennifer and Chad as like Samantha and Jake from Sixteen Candles. And he describes him and his two friends as the Anthony Michael Hall character, or worse, Long Duck Dong, the foreign exchange student, quote, a walking caricature of every ridiculous and humiliating Asian stereotype. Either way, I knew I wasn't getting Jennifer with my poor accented English. Now, Waja's ESL group consisted of him, two Asian American girls who just got there who didn't speak English, and a black kid who, quote, seemed to be there for no discernible reason other than he was the token black kid. Now, the next segment here is, again, something you're going to have to read for yourself because the teacher goes over V's and W's with Wajahat. And he says uh, here that words with both a V and a W are Desi kryptonite and includes a list of 10 words that can be used to dismantle your Desi nemesis, if you so desire. Now, both Waj and his wife, Sarah, actually used to tease their parents for their accents, both for amusement's sake, but also as ownership of their roots. But Waj says his generation could do something his parents' generation could not, and that's code switching. He could sound Urdish while talking to uh, South Asian elders and then just flip a switch unconsciously and sound like an American kid from the suburbs. And he reminds us that we all have accents, but only some of us are deemed foreigners. 
He talks about the Boston accent, the accents in the South. Arnold Schwarzenegger, who went on to become the governor of California, accents in New Orleans. But Waj never ginned up the courage to talk to Jennifer, and her and Chad ended up going out. But one day at lunch, Chad told Waj, hey, join me and my squad out on the field. And Waj was shocked that the cool kids wanted to hang out with him. He says, Allah forgave me for being left-handed. The social ladders descended from heaven. This is all I ever wanted. But when he got there, two of Chad's friends held him and asked the only person of color in Chad's crew, a Mexican kid, to punch Waj in the stomach. Quote, he hesitated. He met my eyes for a brief moment as if to say, hey, sorry, man, but I gotta do this. You know how it is. I'm getting my stripes today. And boom, right in the gut. Everyone laughed as Waj tried to catch his breath. And he said the entire experience, while just a blip in the grand scheme of the universe, is a perfect microcosm for the American dream. Quote, the good minority earned his rank by beating up the bad minority, a tale as old as the founding of this country. Now, next up, y'all, is the Husky Pants story. And again, I'm going to have to insist that you read this on your own. It is for your own good. I would only wreck it trying to convey it here. And it's so perfectly written that nothing I could say would put it across the way that it needs to be put across. Suffice to say that Waj made peace with his awkwardness, fully owned his eccentricities, and that brought about a quiet confidence that would eventually attract women and friends, but only after he discovered his superpower, which was unlocked when he was assigned to write an original story by his fifth grade teacher. It was only supposed to be one page, but Waj wrote a 10-page epic saga based on the Kevin Costner version of Robin Hood and blended it with all kinds of classic tales. And he turned it in hesitantly. And his fifth grade teacher told him it was brilliant. And she said, well, I'm giving you an A+. Plus. And he's like, what an A+. Plus? Like he was surprised. What an A+. Plus? And she's like, okay, fine. I'll give you an A+++++. Plus, 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 plus. And she wrote four plus signs in red on top of the paper. And she told him, you need to recite this in front of the class. And Waj says, quote, what? This was not part of the deal. I was supposed to receive my A++++, feel amazing for the day, go show off to my parents, and then eat food, unquote. <laughs> and they told her, I'd rather not. And she says, nonsense. They'll love it. She says, everybody, Wajahat got an A++++ on his story. He's going to read it for all of you. Pay attention. Of course, he's overcome with nervousness. His heart stopped. His heart's in his throat. He said Bismillah under his breath, and he began reading. And to his surprise, looking up, no one's mocking him. No one's laughing. No one's making fun of him. The class was listening intently, wide-eyed. Girls were leaning in. They laughed at most of the jokes, most of the right places. And by the time he finished, they were all applauding. She didn't even have to ask for a pity clap. He says, quote, I sat down amid nods of respect from some of my usual bullies. But then the teacher told him he'd have to read it for the upcoming talent show. It's like a hundred, hundreds of people. He called it his eight-mile moment, and he received the same enthusiastic response. He had discovered his superhero skill. He had found a voice. He says, quote, in America, if you aren't writing your story, it will always be written for you. And he closes the chapter with, quote, I went home and gave my parents the short story. My father read it while drinking chai at the table. After finishing, he said it was very good and told me I should consider becoming a writer. My mom, overhearing the conversation, rushed in from the kitchen and said, yes, but first become a doctor. <laughs> That's chapter one. Uh, next week, I'm going to cover chapters two and three. And seriously, if you don't have this book yet, get it. 
Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health and vote blue over Q. I've been AG, and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.